Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. Today, we're going to talk about intervention and decision-making tools for cancer prevention in patients. We're here with Michigan Medicine Professor of Medicine, Dr. Sarah Hawley. She is the co-director of the Center for Health Communications Research at the Rogel Cancer Center and assistant director of the Cancer Surveillance and Outcomes Research Team. Also, she is a research investigator at the Ann Arbor VA Hospital. Dr. Holly's research focuses on evaluating and improving the quality of cancer care across a continuum from screening through treatment and into survivorship. She is interested in understanding and improving patient and physician decision-making related to cancer prevention and control services. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. As we look at this, what are ways to evaluate a patient's quality of care? That's a great question. I think uh, we're, we're always interested in understanding the patient's experience with the care that they receive across the continuum, really from um, when you think about a cancer patient from cancer prevention through survivorship care. And there's, there's many ways to think about quality. One is obviously whether or not they simply received the care that they needed. Um, and that is usually measurable through things like, um, you know, medical records and administrative data to understand uh, receipt of care. But the work that I do tends to look at quality of care more broadly and really from a patient reported perspective and trying to understand how patients feel about that quality. So we've, as part of my, my cancer surveillance and outcomes research team group and um, the Center for Health Communications Research, we've been interested in evaluating patient assessments through a variety of measures that we've used, both in terms of surveying patients directly, as well as integrating assessments into tools that we deploy to patients um, in their health setting to try to understand how they feel about the care that they received. Did they uh, feel positive about the decision-making experience in getting the care? Did they feel positive about the coordination of their care? Um, do they feel positive about their outcomes of care in terms of how they're doing symptom management and you know, other issues that they may have at home after receiving care? Can you explain a little bit more about what the Center for Health Communications Research does? I know you just mentioned patient surveillance, but is, is it do more than just that? Yes, absolutely. So the Center for Health Communications Research, um, or CHCR, um, as we call ourselves, has really been in business since the mid-1990s. Um, it was originally developed and funded as a Center for Excellence in Cancer Communications Research under a funding mechanism from the National Cancer Institute. And over time, it evolved into um, working across kind of interventions. Uh, it, it's really an intervention development group. So interventions for improving patient care and patient outcomes really across the continuum. Mm -hmm using different formats, anything from print to computer-based to app-based to telephone, automated voice response-based to even some newer technologies that we've been using in more recent years. But as we've kind of grown and over time, we've also come more recently to focus back on our kind of true mission of cancer specifically. So uh, we're now a center that really um, serves as a shared resource for the Rogel Cancer Center to help our members develop 
tools to really support patients in their care, um, again, using different formats. We do interventions focused on cancer prevention, sort of how to help patients in, uh, obtain screening that they need to prevent cancer, colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, also more primary prevention interventions such as diet and exercise-based interventions. We also do quite a bit in the treatment space, which is my own personal area of research is sort of the treatment decision-making that patients have to do when they're faced with a cancer diagnosis, um, trying to navigate what are typically very complex decisions around initial treatment and follow-up treatment that they need to obtain. And then when they are done with their primary treatment, going back to survivorship care, how to help patients, again, monitor any ongoing symptoms, you know, obtain the appropriate surveillance care that they need to, again, have high quality outcomes as a cancer survivor. So we've really done work across a continuum and all of those different topics have been projects using different formats, as I mentioned, anything from print-based to telephone-based to app-based and beyond. <laughs> Outside of, say, these intervention tools, um, I mean, communications is part of that name. Are there other forms of communication or is it just the different tools to utilize to get the information and or collect the information from uh, the patients or those that are utilizing them? So there's a, um, quite a few different types of interventions that, that the center has embarked on, uh, but what we're really sort of known for is a tailored approach to interventions for improving outcomes for patients and families. So what I mean by that is how do you take something that is important to an individual patient and collect it from them, whether that be a piece of medical information such as their cancer stage or a comorbidity that they may have that may affect the appropriate treatment that they need to, to be given, or whether it's something more socially like their cultural background or their language or their literacy level in terms of understanding information. And so by using assessments that are principally pulled from patients themselves um, or the user of the intervention, they answer some questions. Um, but it can also be pulled from a medical record if we have that connection built in place. We're able to tailor information that is most meaningful to that individual. We have a program that was developed uh, as part of that first center that I mentioned started in the 90s called the Michigan Tailoring System that takes this information and then feeds back to the user that information that is most relevant, most salient, most engaging to them. And the intervention then feels very personalized and particularly in this era of personalized medicine and, and uh, precision oncology, having information that feels like it was made for you is something that can be really valuable for users. So that, that's sort of an overarching theme of the center. But underneath that theme, again, we've done things that are tailored based on, we finished a project as part of my VA um, work that was tailored to the veterans line of service, for example, because we know that that's something that really resonates with veterans. And so we use that information to give them um, more personalized feedback around that. But I can give many other examples of how, we, what, how we've used tailoring to deliver information. So the 
tailoring is the the key part. Now, do you utilize that information for patients maybe that you haven't seen yet, but then could be available to them when they maybe become a patient? Well, that's a great question. So it really depends on uh, the structure of the project that we're working on. And within the center, we do primarily um, projects that are funded through various funding mechanisms, whether that be um, the National Institutes of Health or foundations or internal funds uh, from our own cancer center. But we also have done some work with sort of outside groups such as um, companies. And so it really depends what what we have access to at the initiation of an intervention. So most of the time uh, when we're working on a study, we have access to what the patient can tell us. So we would build kind of an intake survey that would assess things that were important to that particular project, who the, PA, who the principal investigator was or whoever was kind of leading that project. If, if the goal of the project was to have individuals exercise more or eat more fruits and vegetables, we might want to understand at the beginning of the project what they currently do. And just as an example, we would collect that from them and then we would give tailored information back to them uh, that would address where they were at currently and perhaps also some of their personal goals in terms of the outcomes. Can you describe a little bit more about some tools that are available? I know um, on a previous Three Ps of Cancer podcast, I talked with Dr. Larry Ann about tips for health, which um, I believe came out of your, your area there. Uh, so maybe can you explain a little bit more about that and other tools that are available? Yes, absolutely. So tips for health is um, a texting-based program. Um, we actually partnered with the National Cancer Institute to, to take what the, the National Cancer Institute had developed some texting libraries. Those are the messages that you get when you might sign up for a texting program. You know, in other areas, you might get a regular text every day and somebody would write those messages. So these were messages that the National Cancer Institute had written related to smoking cessation, um, diet and healthy eating and exercising. And so through partnering with them, we were able to take those message libraries to our center and then to uh, refine them somewhat so that they were more appropriate for Michigan patients, particularly Michigan residents. Um, so we had some local tailoring that we applied. And then we also developed our own program, our own uh, Tips for Health program focused on colon cancer screening which is a particular area of need in Michigan. We have lower rates of colon cancer screening than some other states nationally. And we also have some slightly higher rates of colorectal cancer. So we chose that topic as our first additional module to add to our Tips for Health platform. So now we're able to offer four um, texting programs out into the community, the three that I mentioned, which are really more focused on kind of primary prevention with the diet and the exercise and then smoking cessation is something that um, you know, we always are trying to promote throughout the community. And then colon cancer screening is the new one that we developed. So how they work is we launch the texting number out into the community through advertising and local marketing and by working directly with clinical practices and making the materials available. And then individuals can join by texting into a number 
or going to our website and answering some questions. Um, for the colorectal cancer screening version, they do need to answer a few questions so that we can understand their risk for colorectal cancer, uh, which the program is then tailored on, as well as any individual barriers that they have to that particular activity, such as concern about the PrEP or not really thinking it's needed for average risk individuals. And then we deliver information to them that's tailored to those areas of concern that they indicated that they had. So that program has been available now for a couple of years, the colorectal cancer screening one only most recently in the last few months, but we've made that available through um, to Michigan Medicine employees. We've also made it available broadly throughout the community, again, by promoting it at community events and through a recent funding endeavor that we undertook with some rural practices in Michigan that were sort of located in the upper part of the state. And we made the Tips for Health uh, program available to them through advertising it in their practices. So it's been very well received. We're working now to get the colorectal cancer screening program integrated hopefully into a health system because we think that's one where it really needs to be paired with a provider's recommendation and with the health system's uh, promoting of colon cancer screening as a priority rather than something that individuals in the community might be likely to just simply want to do on their own. So that's one program, uh, which is again, more focused on prevention. Um, another program which we are uh, working on now is focused on breast cancer treatment decision-making. We developed a interactive tailored breast cancer treatment decision tool that runs online and it's called I Can Decide. Um, it's designed to help patients with a new diagnosis of breast cancer to really understand and sift through their choices between a lumpectomy with radiotherapy or a mastectomy and then with or without breast reconstruction. And then from there to help them understand um, their choices with regard to systemic therapy, including chemotherapy and hormone therapy. Um, and that tool uh, went through a large study in many surgical practices, which ended early lat, uh, in early 2019. We were able to publish the results of, of a study of that tool, and then we were able to get some additional funding to do kind of a next generation version of the tool, which has even more tailoring, and we're working on that currently right now. You know, I guess, you know, those we've talked about some prevention and what you're doing for some di newly diagnosed breast cancer patients. But yeah, what other other tools are are you working on or do you foresee coming down pike later relating to current health situations that are, are always going to be around for a bit? I mean, un unfortunately, the COVID-19 probably be around for quite a while although um, things would be a lot different than they are now, um, but also what, uh, as it relates to some of the outcome tools that you've been working on. Yeah, so I guess starting a little bit more broadly than the current pandemic situation, one of the areas of interest that we've had, and, and we have a, a couple projects in this space, is once cancer patients finish their initial treatment, um, and they are returned to their primary care setting and are in the cancer survivorship space, which is a wonderful space to be. 
um, to be a cancer survivor and not undergoing active treatment, that space can be very um, difficult for patients to navigate and not very well coordinated. And cancer survivors can also have um, ongoing symptoms and needs related to their cancer treatment or simply to the emotional impact of having cancer uh, that often aren't well addressed in that kind of trade-off from oncology care to primary care. So that veterans project that I mentioned earlier was a project that was designed to help veterans who were long-term prostate cancer survivors but still experiencing symptoms to manage those symptoms at home because many of the symptoms are easily manageable uh, but were sort of getting lost in the shuffle of their care. And so we did an automated telephone paired with a tailored newsletter that helped them pick a symptom to manage on and, and manage and focus on that. Um, and that was really well received by veterans. And the reason that I'm mentioning that now as part of the current situation that we're in is this issue of monitoring at home is becoming so much more important as we're seeing so much of our care shift to telehealth and virtual visits and trying to interact with providers and health systems from one's home, having that ability to do things virtually and to monitor oneself at home is just going to, I think, continue to be important. So that's something that we're trying to help with as, you know, the, the COVID coronavirus situation is so quickly evolving and the needs are so rapidly changing. But one thing that we're trying to work on currently as part of our center, which is not related to cancer, but to this other issue of kind of monitoring is, could we develop something sort of similar to a tips for health module that could help people with symptoms monitor themselves at home and understand when those symptoms really are getting to the point that they need to go to a health setting versus just kind of an ongoing monitoring and feel more connected to a health system that is rapidly becoming a bit overwhelmed with, with patients in the hospital. So we're trying to join with our health information technology group at Michigan Medicine to do some work in that space. And my, my co-director, Larry Ahn, who you spoke with before, is really leading that work. But I think it's critically important. Another area that we have tried to jump in and help out with um, in terms of the coronavirus situation is as we have tried to shift more inpatient care to dealing with patients who come in with coronavirus, that means a lot of patients who are planning to have ongoing care, particularly cancer patients, are having to reschedule that care, postpone it, perhaps go to a different location for surgery than they were originally planning to, and that communication of all of that information can be extremely confusing, unsettling, anxiety-inducing to hear that you need to wait, you know, a couple months for a surgery, for example, even though that is not going to affect your outcome in terms of how well you're going to do following that surgery for somebody with a new diagnosis that can be very, very unsettling to hear. So we've been helping to create some communication tools for providers to use to really help patients understand better why that's happening and how to kind of settle patients' nerves a bit with regard to some of those shifts in care that's happening currently. And that work launched like a week ago and we jumped in and helped kind of with providing some of the communication tips and outline and now it's being pushed out through our health system and maybe even more broadly 
nationally for oncology providers to kind of use as, as a set of tools to help them with those communications. Outside of what we've just discussed, you know, as before the current pandemic situation started, um, and you've been able to jump in with some new tools to be able to address those needs of, of cancer patients as well as uh, other patients. I think any time that you can have a symptom checker is valid for everyone. Before all this started though, what are some tools that you were excited about looking for that you're planning to, to launch and are looking forward to as things start to, to change and move forward uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months that are, are, are new and exciting? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the breast cancer treatment uh, tool because that's a tool that we showed some initial benefit in terms of helping patients to make better quality decisions. They were more informed. They felt more prepared to make those initial decisions. And so we were really excited about that when we tested it originally. But we also identified a couple of areas of gaps where we felt we could continue to meet needs that came forward during during the study of that tool. Um, and those two areas are what we're addressing in the next generation tool, which I'm really excited about. The first is we did a pretty good job of helping patients kind of cognitively understand risks and benefits associated with treatment options, but we did not really address the emotional response that goes along with a cancer diagnosis that can be kind of ever-present throughout a decision-making process. And if we don't address and help to uh, manage worry and anxiety, sometimes decisions for more intensive or, you know, kind of snap decisions are made that patients may regret down the road a little bit more than if they really had been able to kind of go through that with a little bit of a less anxious, you know, hat on, so to speak. So, we have developed a module for the I Can Decide tool that helps to address worry and anxiety as patients go through their breast cancer treatment decisions. And I'm very excited for us to launch that as part of a new study, hopefully at the end of this year. We also paired that with something that's miss missing from a lot of decision tools, which is the physician piece. So a lot of decision-making tools are developed to put in the hands of patients and give them information and then ask the patient to bring that information or bring your questions back to your provider. And that puts a lot of onus and burden on patients, particularly in this construct, uh, in this, you know, uh, context of anxiety and worry. So we've linked it to their physician through kind of a physician facing dash dashboard that will test at the same time as we test out the patient anxiety and kind of emotional support uh, regulation module that we've developed. So that is um, something that hopefully will be in the field at the end of 2020, and we're really excited to test it out and compare it against kind of traditional patient-facing cognitive-based tools. We have a couple other projects that, are, that we're working on currently that are really exciting. One is what we're calling a menu-based chatbot project that we're doing in partnership with the cancer support community. Um, we're taking their evidence-based program called Open to Options, which is primarily delivered by a trained counselor over the telephone, helping a newly diagnosed cancer patient come up with a 
list of priorities and values as they go into their first appointment or an appointment with an oncology provider. They were, they, the cancer support community uh, wanted a version that could be more widely deployed um, and utilized not necessarily by a person on the other end of the phone. So we're working with them to develop a chatbot kind of version one that's menu-based using the experience of the counselors to work with us to kind of pre-populate um, some of the responses that patients get to, again, help them develop this question list and values list. We hope to test that out eventually in enough users that we can actually develop a real-time chatbot. Um, so that's that technology is very exciting to me, as well as the focus on getting something out there in front of patients. Usually, you know, it's easier to get something that could be used on a phone rather than having to always make a phone call to a person on the other end of the line. So we're hoping to have a broader reach by that partnership. Um, and a third exciting project that we're working on currently is um, a partnership with Google, which is also being spearheaded by my colleague Larry on, but it's helping patients and their family members to really end a visit with an oncology provider with a tech, uh, transcribed audio text of that conversation with that provider that can be then searched to find additional information. So what we know is patients often go into a visit and they're a little bit of a deer in headlights hearing all of the information um, about their cancer diagnosis for the first time and their treatment options, and they may leave the visit and not really remember what was said. So we are developing an application that they can, again, with Google and with, with support from Google, putting it on their own smartphone or their own device that can then be transcribed and searched to revisit and really kind of spend some time looking over that visit later at home to understand more about their, their treatment options and uh, to return to the provider with any questions should they have any. And we're hoping to also expand that more broadly as we get further into that project. So yeah, those are I, a couple I, of exciting ones that we have going on right now. Yeah, that, that one sounds really exciting. I know when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I recorded it so I would remember, but you know, trying to skim through a recording for something that, did they say that or not, is can be difficult, but being able to have a, a text, have it turn into a text to be able to type in what I'm looking for would, would have been very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously Google is known for search. Um, that's kind of, <laughs> you know, what they're known for. So that's where we're really benefiting from that collaboration. Um, and again, hopefully down the road, the idea would be if we can get enough people using it and have enough sort of um, transcripts something like natural language processing or, or AI could even be used to feed people back kind of a more nuanced search. Um, we're definitely not there yet, but um, you know, we're hoping that those, those types of methodologies can be applied in the future as we continue this work with them. But it is something that people have been, have really resonated with. Um, in terms of being able to have something tangible that they can then take back and then share uh, securely with family members in other areas if they weren't able to attend a visit with you as the patient. That's another benefit of something like this. You've talked about some of these new exciting tools and specific cancers and some prevention. Are, are any of these focused on, are, are they focused only on 
existing patients? Are there any tools or anything that you guys are working on geared towards maybe an underserved population as well? Yeah, I mean, I would say most of the things that we work on, we have an eye toward, you know, ensuring that the use is across individuals of various diverse backgrounds, whatever that might be, whether it's rural, urban, um, racial, ethnic minority, whether it's digital literacy, that's something that we're always kind of having an eye to and we try to make versions of things that are easily accessible and don't require like the most new version of a iPhone, for example. Mm -hmm. We try to make mobile applications that um, are mobile optimized so that they can be used not only on an iPhone, but also on an Android, which there is a digital divide in terms of the um, use of Androids versus iPhones that we kind of always have, you know, attention to um, so that they're not always having to be used on a desktop, for example. You know, with that said, we are limited somewhat by, you know, the, the goal of the project and whether that project has a specific focus on reaching underserved populations, which many of our projects do. The breast cancer treatment study that I just mentioned um, will have a Spanish version developed and will have attempts to particularly over-recruit patients who are Spanish-speaking. Um, but after that, we're sort of limited by funds to do other languages at this point. But that would be the hope down the road if you can show effectiveness that you can obtain you know, additional resources to do those translations to make them work for, for anybody. We do have a version of Tips for Health at this current time that we're translating into Arabic. Um, we are really wanting to reach that population in the Dearborn area, which is one of the, I think, the second largest um, Middle Eastern North African population nationally. And so we're attentive to that and want to make sure that our program, which is a prevention program primarily, so it's designed to be used by people who don't have cancer, and if used well, to hopefully help towards um, cancer prevention. So that program will be done hopefully this summer and launched, and we can do some evaluation of whether you know, it was well received in that population. So we're always kind of thinking that way, um, how to reach the most people, what are the issues that need to be surmounted in order to, to get tools to all types of people. Even something as simple as Tips for Health, which is probably one of the easiest programs to use um, because it's simply text messages that can be delivered um, on any type of phone. You do not need a smartphone to do the Tips for Health suite of prevention programs. But even that we found, for instance, in some areas of, of rural Michigan, data use plans become an issue. Um, so while most people have a phone that can receive texts, whether they want to use their data plan for, you know, a smoking cessation program is something that we're trying to understand and come up with some ideas about how to meet that. Could we pair that with, you know, some minutes or could we pair that with something that would make it easier for individuals with that particular problem to use the programs. As things move along, you're evaluating the tools to make sure um, and updating them to make sure that they are meeting uh, the end user's needs? Yes, absolutely. That's a challenge because mo we are, um, as I said, we are funded by 
uh, grants that are given to um, members of the Rogel Cancer Center and individuals that want to work with, with our center to develop tools. So when the grant is done, then the money is done to help us continue its dissemination or its updating. So we're always trying to think ahead about how to do that when we get to that point with the end goal really being tools that work should be publicly available and they should be um, you know hopefully integrated into health systems that have interest in using them and so the more that we can connect with groups that can promote tools nationally whether that be national organizations um, national you know foundations health systems the better because then when we can do that handoff at the end of our study and somebody would be willing to kind of take on that tool but it, it is an it is an ongoing question as to the ongoing updating needed to make sure that a tool is current and um, you know that will continue to evolve and probably be a challenge but it's always something that we're thinking about so i really appreciate the time today can you leave us with uh, a key point that you want to make sure that we can walk away with? I think what I would want to walk away with is that we're an ever-changing society and technology is also ever-changing and rapidly changing, but it offers us what technology as simple as something like an automated phone call to something as complicated as using you know artificial intelligence to run through a big data set and give tailored feedback and anything in between, it gives us opportunities to improve care for patients, um, to make them feel more connected with the health system, with their providers, um, with evidence that we know would be useful for them to understand. Um, and we can use technology to deliver it in a way that, like I started by talking about the tailoring, that feels very personalized and that can be comprehensible because a lot of times what we as health providers tell people isn't always doesn't always kind of make it to them in terms of the literacy and kind of understanding um, terminology and that can be confusing and complicated but technology offers a way to make that bridge so i think there'll be a continued need for a group like the center for health communications research to kind of rapidly meet the needs of not just cancer patients, but as you said, patient people who don't yet have cancer and then people who have survived cancer um, and other people as well, as we think about how to improve their health outcomes and, and the question that you started with, the quality of care, um, I think these types of technologies and tools can be a big part of that. Oh, well, again, thank you for the time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org.